Philippians chapter number two, and we'll pick up our reading and where we left off last week. But I'd like to take it for context's sake. I know some of you are visiting with us, and we'll do somewhat of a simple review. But our emphasis this morning will be on verses 16 through 18. But we'll take up our reading in verse number 12 of Philippians chapter 2. And if you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And as I said, we'll pick up in verse number 12. And the Apostle Paul writes by the inspiration of the Spirit of God these words. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you um, because that's who we are. Father, we are men and women saved by the grace of God, I pray, um, whom wholly rest upon your mercy and your grace. Father, we praise you for your son and all that he's accomplished on our behalf. Father, and realize that, that's, that this is a simple expression of that. But even in all of its simplicity, the beauty um, is unparalleled with anything else more in this world, Father. Um, the, beauty is unparalleled, the beauty of your bride um, is incomparable to anything else, Father, that we have tangibly in this world. It's an expression of the love that you have for us, Father. So, so we praise you for that. Father, we come to you this morning as um, feeble men with feeble frames, vacillating spirits, um, clinging to Christ, living with our human nature, Father, recognizing that without you this morning, without your Son, we can do nothing. So we pray that you would empower us, Father, to look to Christ. We pray that you would give us the faith, Father, to believe, and that you would help us, instruct us, exhort us, rebuke us, do whatever is necessary, Father, to conform us this morning to your very image. We know that with all the strength that we have, Father, it's weakness to God. We know that with all the wisdom that we bring, it's foolishness to God. So we pray this morning, Father, through your word, by the power of your spirit, that the God of heaven and earth would speak to lowly men, that we might become, Father, if we're outside of Christ, that they might become the children of God. And for those that are, Father, in the faith, may you strengthen that faith this morning by your word. May you make us more like your son. Father, we pray this morning that you would simply help us to be faithful in the giving and the receiving of your word. And may we do it with the utmost joy, Father, because you have been gracious to us in giving it. Father, we love you, we thank you, and trust you to accomplish the work now as we go to your word. Stay our minds, temper our spirits, Father, even the littlest of these. May they hear the word of God this morning in some form or fashion that would be eternally weighing upon their minds and hearts. Father, so from the least of us to the greatest, speak your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. 
As I mentioned, we pick up where we left off last week. Um, for the last four or five months, I'm not sure exactly when we began this study, but one of my daughters, as she's taking notes, told me uh, right before the service started, Daddy, this is sermon number 21. Um, I'm thankful that she's keeping count, keeps me in line, but um, as you can see, and this would be sermon number 21 in a series as we've just taken the book of Philippians verse by verse. We find ourselves this morning in chapter number 2 with an emphasis on verses 16 through 18. But just to, to, to briefly bring you up to speed, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, the congregation that is here at Philippi. Philippi is a Roman state, uh, Roman ruled in Acts chapter number 16, the Apostle Paul, through the direction of the Spirit of God, when he had a plan to go elsewhere, God directs him um, through his sovereign work for Paul and his labor, co-laborers with him to begin a ministry in Europe that found its roots in Philippi. And what a blessing it was. Lydia's converted. A Roman jailer's converted. Um, we can... We can conclude, I think, with good reason that a demon-possessed girl is, is, is converted. And those are the only ones that we know of. We know that at the end of his ministry there, as he leaves, he leaves Timothy behind to disciple this congregation with a number of converts, including the households um, that are there. And the Apostle Paul, possibly ten years later, is now writing this letter back to Philippi with just a chief affection um, for these people. And you can see that in the letter. What a blessing it's been. And I pray that it's been a blessing to you um, to labor slowly through the book. I'm reading the book of Philippians like I never have before. Even the passage that is before us this morning. Just what a tremendous blessing we have um, that God would uh, preserve not only ink upon a page, but the very Word of God. And within that Word, um, personalities in which God throughout the ages has used to even influence our souls and our minds. I, I love the Apostle Paul. I've never met him. But he has spoken to me through the Spirit of God on so many occasions. It is almost as if I can envision him sitting before me in my study and him counseling me. And sometimes his, his spirit speaks louder than even his words, that which is underlying it. And that's what you're going to see um, in this portion of Scripture. Just the great affection that the Apostle Paul has for these people, such that if it would conclude in a greater holiness a greater sanctification, a closer walk with God. Paul is more than willing to lay his own life down if it would only benefit those that were there at Philippi. And he truly embodies, I think, in this statement, if it's true, and I believe that it is, if this is the true demeanor and person or, or, or personality of the Apostle Paul, if what he's saying here is true, in his utmost being, and I have no reason to believe that it's not. If that's the case, then what we have here is the um, human example outside of Christ of that supreme example that we have just labored through for weeks in verses 5 through 11. You know, that true spirit of humility, Paul is exhorting. Uh, from, from chapter 1 to 27 up to this point, after he gives his report of progress and exhorts and, and, and comforts, 
and in, and in some sense instructs through through the report. Um, he, he moves to formal instruction in verse number 27. He knows that they're under um, persecution, tribulation. He knows that they have a ministry um, within the realm at Philippi. And he wants to encourage them in that in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. In chapter 2, in verse number 1, in some sense, he says, if that's going to be a possibility, then you must be unified. If God has accomplished these things in your life, consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, being of one accord, of one mind, lowliness of mind, humbling yourselves, um, seeking to esteem others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interest. If you're going to stand fast against the world um, to where it's actually influential and you make a dent in the darkness... You poke holes in the darkness of, of, of humanity. If the gospel is going to prevail in the form that Jesus Christ has died, um, then you must be unified. You have to, you have to um, be as one body. There must be no chink in the armor. There must be no deformation in the line. That God has accomplished not only the salvation of individuals in this life for their own personal walk with Jesus, but that personal walk overlaps with the personal walk and the individual salvation of others. And that, that, that what we have here is just a small manifestation of what, is, what it will be like in eternity. As we all gather around the throne and fall down before Him and worship Him with one voice. That God, throughout the ages, in every generation, and, in every, and, and, and throughout the world, um, has given local expressions, small expressions of that reality. And that is to be played out at Philippi, that's to be played out here in Kingsport, Tennessee, that this is God's will. That, um, at least in part, the light will be contingent, the influence um, that the church is going to have will be contingent upon the body as a whole, and the unity that we have. And you're going to see that even in this text. You're going to see Paul with a willingness to give himself on behalf of his brethren. Why? So that they too um, can push on and press on for the glory of Christ. You're going to see this humility played out. Verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us that supreme example. Maybe they're wondering at the end of verse 4, Paul, like that sounds great, but what does that look like? And he places before them the supreme example of Jesus Christ um, in his death, in his burial, in his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension. And he says, keep that, in some sense, keep that ever before your mind. That it is the gospel, the word of life, Paul says later on. Hold fast to it, that gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is what changes, it is what transforms, it is what works a work in you. Um, then he carries on in verse number 12 with instruction. If that's the case, he says, then work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you. And you see the, the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, and you see the ground of our sanctification. And that too, as much as salvation, is in Christ. And then he goes on to apply that in a, um, in, in a concrete form. As he calls them in verse 14 to do all things without complaining and disputing. And that's where we spent our time last week. That our sanctification is... Just, that, that, that a part of our sanctification that is just as important as our activity positively is also our activity negatively. 
that there are things that we ought not to do, such as complaining and disputing, because really it's an affront to God. We looked at the Old Testament numbers in Exodus particularly, and the, the nation of Israel, their, their supreme, uh, culminating, ultimate sin. It was not just a flaw of their character, it was a sin that kept them out of the promised land. Um, and there is much rebuke from God as a result of that. Why? Because complaining and disputing, reasoning and justi- justifying our disobedience um, f- on many levels um, is... Is its underlying root of that sin is unbelief. Unbelief. Um, and thus he calls them on to be holy. He desires for those at Philippi to be a holy people. We looked at that. Blameless, harmless, pure, children of God, without fault, no blemish, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He gives them a purpose statement. In some sense, he's motivating them to holiness. And one of the motivating factors of that holiness or the grounds upon which that holiness is to be built, Paul pulls upon their their desire to be influential in the world. Um, Paul knows that they have a love for the gospel. Paul knows that they have a ministry to um, the, the lost at Philippi. And Paul tugs upon that heartstrings. Paul tugs upon the will of God for their lives. And pushes them on as a result of that. You want to be, you want to be influential in the world? You want, um, you want to see people come to Christ? You want to make a dent, poke holes in the darkness? You want to shine like a city set upon a hill? You want to hide your light underneath a bushel? Um, then then the, the source of that life is the work of God in you that's being wrought and, and, and concretely expressed in a holy life. And uh, God's people... Will not be. This is the argument. Paul's saying you will not be um, influential in the world if you are not a holy people. How do you do that? Hold fast the word of life so that I may rejoice. Paul then moves on to a second purpose statement. He argues that they should be holy, not only because of their relationship to the world, but in part because of their relationship to Paul. Paul, too, as a spiritual father in the faith, says um, not only do it for them, but do it for me. Do it for me. Paul argues for the holiness of the people of God. Again, on two primary fronts. The first argument, relationship to the church's influence in the world. And secondly, in relationship to Him. To Him. And that's a sufficient argument. You know? Um, and I know that it may sound strange in our ears. Because it seems like it may be the very opposite or contrast of what um, selflessness is. Paul shouldn't be saying, do it for me. He should be saying, do it for God. But oftentimes it's because we think that way because there is a, a false dichotomy that we make between service to God and service to others. Now, what I hope you'll see by the end of the, the text today, and if not, God will show it to us um, at a later time as he, as he plants the seed of this word in our hearts and and souls, is that Paul can truly say that with a godly spirit because what he desires is not their holiness for his benefit, but for theirs and ultimately for the Lord's. He's going to argue for the holiness of the people of God, again, not only on the basis of their relationship to the world, but in Paul, Paul's going to say, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain, 
Paul argues for their holiness in part on the ground of his opportunity and ability to rejoice in the day of Christ that his labor is not in vain. The spiritual maturity of the church at Philippi is at least in part one of the objective criteria by which Paul will examine his will be examined in the day of Christ and the conditions necessary for his reward or the lack thereof. In basic words, the, me- uh, the measure of Paul's ministry will be the holiness of the people. You know, Paul's reward, at least it seems to him, will either rise or fall upon, upon the fruit that is produced within the church there at Philippi. Paul was not only in the ministry for simply gathering professions of faith. Paul was in the ministry for true long-term discipleship. For example, Paul writes a scathing letter to the churches in Galatia, and he writes these words in chapter 4, verse 17. My little children, of whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. He labors not only to present them with correct propositions concerning the truth, but truly as a holy people before the Lord. Paul, in himself, has a desire not only to fill the church with men with a proper knowledge of God. But Paul, in his inner man, understands in, in, in chapter 1, verse number 27, as he calls them to let their conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that that is a holy life. That Paul is laboring for a holy life within the people of God. He labors not only to present them, again, with correct propositions concerning the truth, but as a holy people separated to the Lord. And that's why he, that he gives that, that statement, that, that, that temporal um, determine, determining factor. I'm going to labor with you until what, Paul? Until Christ is formed in you. He says, I labor as with birth pains. But Paul, you don't have a uterus. Like, how could you understand that? But, as a, but he understands that as a woman travails in birth, at that, at that little one is, as that little one is being knit in the womb, and the, the, the pain that carries forth with bringing forth a child in full health, as insofar as he can understand it, Paul does that with the children of God. He labors with them. That's going to be part of the, the terminology in Philippians chapter number 2. That I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's a, it's a, a labor in vain is a, a, a term of, a, of total exhaustion. He is going to spend and be spent. Not only that the, that the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed among all the nations. But actually that Jesus Christ would secure those people out of every nation, tribe and tongue. And it would be in part his duty, his priestly activity to secure a pleasing sacrifice unto the Lord. That God would be offered something that is worthy. That's going to be what Paul, that's what this text is going to argue I think. That Paul is sees the people of God as his responsibility in ministry by the power of the Spirit to prepare them for that day. And it's not only in Philippi, it's not only in Galatia, but too in Colossae we read a similar um, account. To the church at Colossae, Paul writes of his Christ's work on the cross and what it accomplished. And in Colossians 1.21 he says, speaking of Christ's death and accomplishment, these words, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled 
in the body of His flesh through death. Why? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. It's almost what Paul's saying here at Philippi. That you're to be blameless. Why, Paul? Um, uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Because that's what the gospel Jesus Christ died to accomplish. Colossians 1, 21 uh, and 22. Why? Because that's what Jesus Christ purchased. Not only a people to be quantitatively, eternally given life, but qualitatively a different type of life that is to be um, initially born out and lived out here. That Paul is concerned. He goes on in verse 28 of Colossians 1 and says this. Him we preach. We proclaim Him. Warning every man. And teaching every man. In all wisdom. That we may present every man. Perfect. In Christ Jesus. To this end I labor, he says. Striving according to the working which works in me mightily. Paul is concerned more. Than with how many baptisms he had that year. But he is too more so concerned with how many persevered. And not only how many persevered or endured in the sense of how many are still in the church today. But how much more are those who have claimed Christ and the gospel been preached and, 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 and openly testify to the adherence of that gospel that Jesus Christ saved to die. Uh, or died to save, how much more? Paul is saying, how much? I'm more concerned with how much more you are like Christ. How much more are you like Christ? Because that's the goal. The goal is more than professions of faith. It's more than baptisms. It's more than, 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 than building buildings that could hold more people in an auditorium. And it's more than just a superficial um, propagation of the gospel to all the nations. Paul believed that Jesus died for a people, that Christ would secure that people, and, and, and Paul's ministry, as much as proclaiming Christ to that people, was to devote himself to the ministry of perfecting that people in holiness. Paul understood that those at Colossae, those at Galatia, those at Philippi, those at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, 3, for I'm jealous over you. I am jealous with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, he says, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as a servant beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In almost every church, he's arguing with them to stay and to stand fast. Hold fast the word. Why? Because a mere profession of faith is not enough. Is Christ formed in you? Is he? Paul understands and recognizes that a part of his call is that. He knows the responsibility that is given to him. He knows that he's a steward of the gospel. And at the end of the day, because 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2, that the steward's great call is a call to be found simply faithful. So Paul is often looking forward to that day and he's looking back at the day that God called him. And that day, the measure of that day is what God called him to be and to do. Um, it's simply, it's faithfulness. Right? So he's often not looking only at the here and now, but he's examining the, hearing, the here and the now. His work, the work that God gave him to do in light of that day. Because that is what he'll be measured by. And that's what he does here in verse number 16. So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. 
And that he sees that he will be judged on the basis of his faithfulness. And I must just give a, a quick exhortation now to each of us. That we too will be judged upon what God has called us to do. Not upon what man has or what we desire to do, right? Man's given a job, he's given responsibilities, he's given a certain time to do it. And at the end of the time allotted, that's what he'll be judged on. And with that will come reward or punishment. And I hope you understand that because I don't think many Christians today do. And I don't know that if I do practically on many days. Boys and girls, do you understand that? Do you understand that when your mother or your father gives you a job to do, clean your bed or make your bed, clean your room, they give you 15 minutes to do it. They come back and you've just created the most ornate, beautiful instrument of origami. <laughs> as magnificent as it is and as beautiful and as talented as you are, um, your reward will not be given. Your mother may say, clean it up and in 15 minutes you can go outside and play. If not, you'll take a nap for the day. As beautiful as that thing is, and as much other work that you did within that room, you're being judged upon what you were given and commanded. So you could either lay there and do nothing and receive the reward of consequences, or you can, you can deceive yourself in thinking that you actually did something because you did do something else, but not what was required. I think that that's probably a greater danger for us. We're e it's easy for us to look out into the world and to condemn men for doing nothing. Yet when you walk within the church, we are just as guilty and maybe even more so. Why? Because we understand the stewardship that God has given us and we're busy in everything but what God has actually given us to do. So we deceive ourselves with activity. We deceive ourselves with what we think is actually life when it's not. And, there's, and Paul is warning us today in some sense with his exhortation that in light of that day... I will be judged and graded and rewarded based upon not um, what I thought was fanciful, desirous, or creative, but upon what God has given me to do. Thus, it clears the room, and it clears his to-do list, and it makes his life much more simple. Not easier, it's definitely hard, but simpler. That when God comes back, or when we stand before Him today, we will stand and be judged based upon not what we did um, with our lives inherently, but what we did with His life. And what He calls us to do. That's what a steward is to be found faithful. And you walk into many churches or many Christian lives, and what you find them doing is a whole host of activity, but it's nothing that God um, ordains, and it's nothing that God requires. And at the end of the age, that's why for many people, Matthew chapter 7 um, He'll come and they'll say, Lord, Lord, look what I did. You know, we understand that those are unbelievers. But at the same time, we should recognize that that could be too true said of us as believers who were found unfaithful in, in many areas. So Paul pleads with the people and exhorts them according to the call that he's been given on the, the, their faithfulness on the ground of Paul's reward and ability to rejoice. Not to secure anything necessarily for himself, but as Hebrews thirteen seventeen reads, as I read last time, that there's an exhortation there to obey those who rule over you. Why? Because it is a profit for them. You know? That is, Paul is pleading with these people. Paul is not pleading on the basis of, of inherently 
um, a selfish attitude. But, but God, because God has given him a heart for these people such that he such that he desires for them to truly be holy because it would be beneficial and rewarding for them and ultimately for God. And I think that, that that's what we'll see here um, in this passage. But Paul's desire is not simply for their simple endurance, but their sanctified perseverance and his desire for personal holiness and faithfulness. Why? For Philippi's profit and ultimately for God's pleasure. And I think that, that you'll see that in the imagery that God gives us here um, all that is seen within the priestly imagery of verses 17 and 18. So verse 17, yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So if the Apostle Paul is truly, Paul writes um, sometimes as a lawyer, um, he's, he's waiting for accusations, he's waiting for objections, and it may be very well that the Apostle Paul here is assuming that a, an objection will come. Um, that, that after he finishes his verse in 16, he may be thinking, and this is all speculation, so if, if you don't like it, just throw it in the garbage. This is not the word of God. But it may be that they're speculating, well, Paul, you just argued for humility and sacrifice, but, but now you're arguing that, in a selfish way that it's for you. Well, Paul, to alleviate that concern, may be giving verse number 17, um, which if there's any proof that he is truly concerned with them and not himself, I think that verse 17 would be that. That Paul is actually going to argue that if it profits you, it's not for me, it's for you. And if it will profit you more, then I will gladly give my life upon the altar of service to you. Um, that Paul's immediate concern is their holiness. That Paul sees that, desires that. Paul's ultimate concern, though, is God's glory. That actually the Apostle Paul here is the least selfish of any of us, and probably those at Philippi. Um, and it's seen here in what he is willing to do, not only for God, but for them, that God may be honored and glorified. For, so just a couple of minutes, um, let's look at the imagery that Paul gives us here. He gives us the imagery of an office or a priest. He gives us the imagery of an offering. What's the offering? Um, I think it's those at Philippi. And he, too, is part of that offering. And what you're going to see is, is that the outcome, and the outcome is pleasure to God, or pleasure in God. That Paul is not arguing inherently, I'm going to argue this as well, Paul is not arguing inherently for their good and for his good, but for God's good and his glory. And what you'll find is that when God is glorified and when he's good and given to the people, that is their most good. So Paul... Arguing for holiness is arguing that he that 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 he's taking that you're, he's taking anything away from their life, but that through holiness and sanctification they're actually receiving that which is the utmost good, which is God, which He deserves. And in that relationship, when it's born out, born out in this life, is ultimately glorifying to God, illuminating to the world, displaying of His character. So Paul um, argues here through the imagery of sacrifice and service, um, that reality, that reality. You know, the Apostle Paul, it's interesting, um, he, he's a guy not afraid to speak of life and death. <laughs> not at all. I mean, he does it in plain terms. He did it in plain terms in chapter number one. He says, you know, if I die, um, to, to live as Christ and to die is, is, is gain. Um, so why doesn't he just say that here? Uh, why doesn't he just say, I'm, I'm willing to be martyred for you if it'll just produce Christ in you? 
He doesn't do that. For some reason, he pulls upon imagery from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to beautify that reality and to teach them something of their service and their sacrifice and what their relationship ultimately to God is. Because ultimately a sacrifice is given for the people, but, but a priest is, is um, in his service is in relationship ultimately to God. And that's what I want you to see as well. That as we labor in this text, I want you to see that the language here is being utilized to refocus their minds and hearts and lives from themselves ultimately to God. Right? That a sacrifice is being offered to God. That Paul is going to be the priest that is preparing the sacrifice. But he too will come in self-sacrificial service to become part of that sacrifice, to complete it, and together unified, offering something that is acceptable to God. And that is the ground of our rejoicing. That's what he's going to argue. Yes, and I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. That there is this declaration of the Apostle Paul willing to give his life, but it's more than that. That this life is being given in to, to, to perfect their faith, make them more like Christ, so that on that day, in light of that day, Paul, as well as Philippi, can offer something worthy to God. That's the whole point, I'm going to argue, of this passage of Scripture. That he doesn't just come out and say, listen man, I'm willing to die for you. But he's pulling upon their understanding of, of sacrifices, whether Old Covenant and even Gentile or pagan. They shared some of the same realities or purposes. Of course, the Old Covenant is the purest and truest with worship with God. And the other is idolatry. But even the, those at Philippi would have understood something of a sacrifice and a drink offering and service to God in that sense. And that Paul is arguing here. And pulling out pictures to pull upon their understanding, to enlighten it, to, to, to help them understand that ultimately Paul's serving God and ultimately they're serving God and together they are a sacrifice unto God. And Paul sees it as his unique call to prepare them for that. Hence, all uh, evidenced by all the scripture that we looked at with Colossae, with Philippi, with Corinth, with, with the churches at Galatia. Paul sees himself as a priest. Um, and to understand that more, um, just look at the, the words that are, that are um, utilized here. Three words particularly. Offered, sacrifice, and service. Three words. Offered, sacrifice, and service. We're offering, sacrifice, and service. Offer. It means literally to pour out as a drink offering or as a um, libation the Old Testament would use. 2 Timothy 4.6, the same word is used, and Paul says this at the end of his ministry, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. It's the same imagery. Paul understands that his life, as well as those at Philippi, are a sacrifice to be offered up to God. And when that offering comes before God, it will be like the priest of the old covenant. As they would bring the offering, God would accept or deny it based upon its purity and its blamelessness. You know, God was, was not accepting of sincerity or service on the basis of sincerity or genuineness. 
Because people can be sincerely or genuinely wrong. The apostle is drawing imagery from the old covenant as they would understand. As uh, Malachi chapter 1 and verse number 6. Um, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 11. That, that God actually balked at their sacrifices. And it made him nauseated in some sense in his mind that Paul is arguing that those old covenant realities are now coming to fruition in the new covenant. And what, what, what Christ has accomplished is a people who can actually offer sacrifices acceptable to God in Christ. And that, that, that part of that sacrifice of our lives is a holiness, a blamelessness, a purity, an undefiled life. Realizing that that can only, that ultimately that will never happen here, but that should be our pursuit. Paul is encouraging them to do that and saying, if, if, if my life and service helps with that, then take it. Then take it. Keywords offered, offering, um, sacrifice. It's just a normal term for sacrifice in, in verse number 17. The giving up of an animal in the religious or ritual unto God. It's used in Mark 12, uh, 33. It's used in Luke 1 and 23. Speaking of turtle doves being brought as a sacrifice um, by Zacharias. That, that Paul is illustrating what they understand about sacrifices and saying that we're, we're in relationship to God. Um, this is our service. And then finally service. Um, verse number 17, on the sacrifice and service of your faith. This is not the general term for service like we would understand it, like the service of a deacon. Um, you know that deacon is literally servant and it can be verb form. Um, this is a different term. This is actually the term that we get our term liturgy from. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2 through 6 uses this speaking of priests in the temple. Paul is drawing off of imagery from the Old Testament saying that, that there is a service that is to be had um, with, among the people of God as they bring sacrifices there to be blameless and holy before God that they would be received. So you see offer, you see sacrifice, and you see service. There is no doubt that these three words together, Paul desires for us to think about his death as a martyr in a most rich and beautiful way. In a manner of priestly service unto God. Um, that, that in some sense that that is our role even now. First, uh, or Philippians chapter 4 verse 18. First Peter chapter 2 verse 5. You also as living sons are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And to help us understand this more, I'd like for you to turn to Romans chapter number 15. Romans chapter number 15 and verse number 16, Paul's closing down the letter. Um, in verse number 15, you read these words. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will dare not speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders. And he goes on to even expound upon that. You see the same three words. Minister and ministering is the term liturgy. 
as ministering within a temple, the term offering and service or to there. Paul is is alluding to the to the illustration that he is a priest within the temple of God. And it is his goal as an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles to prepare the Gentiles that they might be acceptable. Which explains all of the other verses that we are utilizing um, in, in Galatians, in Colossians, in Philippians, as well as in Corinth. Paul saw... That his faithfulness was bound up in his service to God, in his service to the Gentiles. You know who's a Gentile? The church at Philippi, the church at Galatia, the church at Corinth. They're all um, Roman uh, occupied cities. They're all um, Gentile in nature. They're outside of the nation of Israel. And Paul is giving himself as a priest um, to them to, to, to minister among them and serve them so that he might present them as a people holy and acceptable unto God. As a minister, again, same words, ministering, same sense as in the capacity of a priest. Paul is saying, when I come in gospel ministry, there's masses of the unconverted. They're unclean. They're cut off from God. They can't commune with Him. I come, I preach the gospel. When I preach that gospel, I perform a priestly function. And the knife of the gospel comes, slays the victim, brings them to the end of themselves, and I give my life to the sanctification of that people holy to present them to God. That's Paul's ministry. That's Paul's goal. Paul views his entire apostolic ministry of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as an offering of God to God as a spiritual sacrifice. Just as a priest would bring a lamb or a bull or a dove, just as a priest would ensure that the animal was without defect or blemish or deemed worthy to be sacrificed to a holy God, Paul views himself in relationship to the lost and the saved, the church, and to bring them as an offering to God. Why? Because he's worthy. That he's what he desires to be a faithful priest, labor diligently. He's going to do everything that he can to ensure that the acceptableness of this offer, both in life and possibly even in death. And Paul is so committed that he is willing, and he willingly offers them himself. So the, the next key word or phrase that is important to remember and, and to, to, to utilize in this is that word offering, drink offering. Drink offering on the sacrifice. If you were to go to Exodus chapter number 29 and verse number 38, you would read of the drink offering. You would read of it in places like Numbers and verse number 15, or chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And what you would find out is that as a burnt offering was brought forth, and that there was a commandment there at the end or during that sacrifice to pour out um, wine or honey or even water to complete the sacrifice. What would happen is, is that, that as that altar, that sacrifice is upon the altar, um, it would be at a level of heat that when that wine was poured out upon the altar or the honey or the water, it would create a steam that would rise. And that was picturing... Um, the, the, the concept of, of, the, of, of an aroma rising up to the nostrils of God. You read that in the New Testament as well. Um, Peter writes it, particularly speaking of a, a, a sacrifice. Uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 4, even in the, same cha- in the same verse, speaks of a sacrifice of Epaphroditus, of a sweet-smelling savor. That that's the idea. 
That there was something that would complete the sacrifice. That it was not complete in and of itself. So something would be poured out upon it or beside it. And that it would be totally consumed just as the burnt sacrifice. And it would be transformed into this aroma that would rise to God. And that that in his nostrils he would find it a sweet smelling aroma. And he would accept that sacrifice and, uh, and even reward it. That's the idea here. That the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter number 2 is saying that you, you are sacrificing and serving God. And he's calling them to be blameless and holy, to be acceptable, and to give the life worthy to God that Jesus Christ has bought and produced in them. And Paul is saying, like, do it for me, but don't just do it for me. Know that I'm willing to do it for you. Why? So that it will be acceptable to God. Even to the point to where I... And willing and would take great joy. What a blessing it would be that God would use me to be poured out upon your sacrifice and your servant service of place, of service of faith. That that if, if that happened, I would come alongside you, be consumed with you, that it might be a sweet smelling savor and aroma unto God. That Paul is drawing on that imagery to teach the church at Philippi. But they have a responsibility to God. Why? Why do they have a responsibility to God? Because that's what Jesus Christ died to purchase. A holy life. And that they are to be blameless for faith in God. And that, that, that their service and sacrifice to faith, of faith is to be in accord with God's word and pleasing to Him. And if it would take His life, Paul says, I would willingly give it. Why? Not to take your reward. But to unify, to come together in unity. See, this is an argument for unity. Paul's saying, in the, the, in the greatest way that he can, as he commands unity in the opening verses of chapter number 2, and it's illustrated in Christ, and he continues to instruct them of the unity that Christ has purchased and their effect in the world. Paul is saying that, that if my life culminates to produce um, the, 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 the unity of service such that we would live and die together, I'm willing to do that. That unity arises to the nostrils of God. Based upon sacrifice and service to one another as a sweet smelling savor. Paul is arguing here for pleasing God. And that is the basis and the ground of his rejoicing. It's not because they were great and it's not because they were creative. It was not because they were skillful. It was not because they were knowledgeable. It was not because, man, they went in and they took over. It wasn't because they had dominion, you know, taking the dominion mandate to the point of taking over all the world. And Philippi was, was coming under the dominion of the church. No, it's because God was being glorified. It is because there was, Paul is arguing that that, that that which Christ purchased, Christ deserves. So let him, let us give him what he deserves. And that doesn't come in a sacrifice that is contemptible to God. You must be holy. You must be holy. You must be blameless. You must be without reproach. You must be without blemish. Why? Because that's what Christ desires. That's what God demands. And the only perfect sacrifice that has ever been given um, to, to where it reaches that level is Jesus Christ Himself. So serve in Him, by Him, through Him, and for Him. And as this church labors together for Christ in holiness, working 
out their salvation with fear and trembling, God working in them, they become acceptable unto the Lord. And that's evidenced by a holy life. And Paul is saying that if, if, if God would allow me for just one final act to contribute to your sanctification and God's glory, then that would be the capstone of my life. I think that that's what he's arguing. He's arguing it not for his own benefit, but there is in some sense his own benefit. And I don't think that that's selfish. I don't think it is at all. I think that oftentimes we, we think of selfishness or self-serving, um, doing anything for oneself. But the contrast is, should not be that. But selfishness is, is born out of a natural man pursuing what he desires. But what do you have in Romans chapter 6? When that man dies to his sin and lives unto God, God births in him, works in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. And his will becomes God's will, you know. And that you could rightly say, this is, this is one of the goals I have for you, as well as my own soul. That I could rightly say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I can pray it with all true honesty. That my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because his will is my will. That it's not two different prayers, it's just two different perspectives. When Paul is arguing actually for um, them doing it for his pleasure, he's not arguing it in contrast with God's. Paul is on par with God. God's will is Paul's will. And Paul desires more than anything for God to be pleased with the sacrifice of those at Philippi so that he knows that he hadn't run in vain. And that to receive that reward would only glorify God all the more. He's not arguing for reward on his own basis or because of selfish assumptions or because he desires it all for himself to build his own kingdom. No, no, he does it in subservience and submission to Almighty God, knowing that when that reward is given, on that day it will bring glory to his name. And if at any moment God requires my life to propagate the gospel and holiness in the life of these people, People, that they would stand before God blameless in reward. And all the world would know that the, the, the glory of God is displayed in these people. Then God, take not only my life, but, but take it in death. That's what he's arguing here. It's the most selfless statement that you could find. Paul's not trying to build himself up among the people um, so that he would be some type of, of authority over them, uh, pursuing his own will. No, Paul is arguing for God's glory and the display of his character and the acceptable nature of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ died to procure. And he's saying to Philippi, give him what he deserves. Give it to him. And if I can help in any way in my life or my death by being unified to the sacrifice of service in your life, then so be it. And you know something of this, don't you? Especially those of you who have children. God has given you somewhat of a natural picture of this type of love and this type of devotion. Although it falls short of the true glory of God. But, but, but as you're raised and as you raise your children, He preaches to you commonly in common grace the spiritual realities because you know something of this love. You know something of raising that little one for 18 years and seeing them rebel or, or being horrified at even the thought of it. And you, and you think, God, uh, 
if, if you would allow me just to give my life or death, I would do anything. I would give it all up if only they would turn to you. You know, that's what Paul's saying. Paul, with a true affection for those at Philippi, sons and daughters in the faith. He's not arguing running um, inherently faithful on his behalf, but he's saying, I want to run faithful on their behalf and on behalf of the glory of God. And if it takes my life and my service, and ultimately I'm being poured out like a drink offering, if that would complete the sacrifice and make it honoring to you, Lord, then I would do it. I would do it. This is what Paul is arguing for. He's arguing for a priesthood, a new covenant priesthood, new covenant sacrifices, new covenant offerings, new covenant administration coming under the um, submission of God, realizing and looking to those shadows and pictures and realizing that that was always the point. That Jesus Christ would be that great high priest ministering in the temple day in and day out. And that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for his people to secure people for himself. That would not only be quantitatively his for all eternity, but would be qualitatively his a different people, a holy people. And he's arguing that if you want to, to live in such a way that it displays that reality to a lost and a dying world, then be holy. Why? Because you are holy. Die to sin. Why? Because Paul argues in Romans 6, you did die to sin. Yield yourself to righteousness. Why? Because you truly are righteous. And to think anything else is to undermine the work of Christ. You say, you're arguing for sinful perfection? No. <laughs> not at all. I'm arguing for the pursuit of giving God what He deserves. And, the, and what He deserves is a holy people. And I want you to know today that if God would allow me the blessed opportunity to contribute that either in my life or death, then that would be the greatest joy of my life. If Jesus Christ would receive the reward of His sufferings, and He would be truly worshipped, honored, and glorified, the way that he desires. One of the greatest tragedies, travesties of all the earth today is that this world, from inch to inch, is filled with men, women, and children still in continuous rebellion against the holy God. In all of his perfection, all of his love, and all of his grace, they balk at the very thought of, 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 of a deity that would be over them. They don't see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ and the worthiness of his worship. The worthiness to bow down out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That they were created for this. And, and it won't be until that it culminates on that great day. Until uh, that great day when we gather around Him as one body, one bride. And fully worship Him in, uh, in a manner in which he is, he is worthy of. But until then, let us pursue it. Let us run. Let us labor. Let me tell you, I'm not, I'm not laboring here I'm in a way that is somewhat ethereal or, or, or abstract or in isolation. God has given me a love, not only for this people, but for the Tri-Cities. And I'm not here to garner professions of faith. I'm here to produce, that, that God may use me. And God may use Pastor Robert and other men here to produce a holy people. A people who honor God. A people who are blameless. A people who are pure. People who are holy. Why? Because that's what Jesus Christ deserves. Paul is arguing that very reality here and now. And when we come to this passage of Scripture, we can apply it in that manner. I want to give you just a few lines of application. I don't have much time to expound upon them, so please forgive me. 
But number one, this passage teaches us many things. But one thing that it does teach us is that we are to live day in and day out in light of that day. We are to live day in and day out in light of that day. And we are to live this day in faithfulness. Faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4.1, I read it in 2 earlier. I, I alluded to it. That a steward is simply to be found faithful. Judge nothing before the time, Paul says, until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of men's hearts. Um, but boys and girls, what God requires of you is not creativity. It's not um, strength. It's not power. It's not wisdom. It's not might. It's not intellect. What he desires of his steward is to be found faithful. And I find that the, the, the failure of, of most men and women on this and the anxieties of their heart are born in the reality that they don't know what God requires of them. Can you imagine going to work? I've been at places like this and I show up and uh, they say get to work and they don't tell you what to do. <laughs> The anxiety of your heart. Why? Because at the end of the day, you don't know what you're going to be judged on. And they can come, the, 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 the employer can come and say, well, why didn't you do this? You, know, you didn't tell me to do that. Um, you're fired. And the embitterment and the anger that can, that can come out of it, that, 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 that we need to understand as men, as women, as children, as pastors, as preachers, as Sunday school teachers, as, as workers, as career men, as career men, women, as, as, as husbands, as fathers, whatever, what God requires of us. Why? Because that's what we'll be gauged upon. And may we be found faithful as, as stewards. Number two, this passage teaches us something about our task as priests. Not priest is mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. But in some priestly function, we are to minister the gospel to a lost and dying world. And I would argue, I don't think it's a stretch to think that, that men are given the pastoral role or men within the home are given somewhat of a priestly function um, to, 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 to pursue the holiness of the economy that God has placed them over. You know, that... That Pastor Robert, and this is an exhortation to us and other men that may ascend to the position of an elder here. And we're not building a conglomerate industry. We're not CEOs of a business organization. Um, we are a body. We are the bride of Christ, which he purchased with his own blood, and he deserves a holy people. Some people get irritated and aggravated when I text or when I call or when we show up or I, I, I ask them about their spiritual condition as if I'm being overbearing. If that's ever the case, please forgive me. Even pursuing someone this week, you know, it's almost as if I'm too persistent. As if, I, um, why not just let them go? You know, some people will look at it and say, you know, that, that, that burden is not yours to bear anyway. Can you imagine how much more your life would be without this person or that person or this person or that person? And in a natural sense, I say, I understand exactly. Let's cut ties and move on for the glory of God. Yet, yet I, I don't know how. I don't know how to let people like that go. Not those whom God has given. They've made a profession of faith, committed themselves to this congregation, and said that Jesus Christ was their Lord. Um, it is imperative that we pursue them, that they be a holy people. And at this moment, there are people all throughout this Land and even members of this church that are out there uh, bringing a reproach upon the name of Christ, and I do it as much, I do it more for Him than I do for them. Why? Because He's worthy of them. But two, God's given me just, and I pray you a heart for the people that are here. 
They're more than just numbers. They're more than just a page upon it directly, directly. But that God instills upon our hearts as he did the apostles such a desire for his brethren according to the, to the flesh and also the Gentiles that he would spend and be spent that they may be acceptable unto God on that day. And therefore we run. And therefore we labor. And therefore we cannot temper on some days our activity as if we can restrain ourselves or hold back or self-love or take care of ourselves. Not when we know that Jesus Christ did the same for us. Who entered into the world to spend and to be spent on our behalf. And that love is to be expressed to a lost, a lost and a dying world. And to temper that is to temper the very glory and character of God. Let it be displayed a light to a lost and a dying world. That we are willing to be poured out upon an offering. If it would just save one. That if it would just save, if God would use it. To be united with the service of faith of others that it would just, God would use as an instrument to bring glory to His name. And that that young man or that young woman or those, those children within my home, if, if I would die at a young age, then it would be, it would, in total service and exhaustion to God, then it would be a worthy life. Is this what the gospel has produced in your souls, church? Just a, not only a love for God, but a love for people. And a love for God such that it causes us to pursue people. Why? Because He's worthy of a sacrifice. He's worthy of an offering acceptable to Him. Is this, is this the nature of the gospel? This passage teaches us that our service to God is wrapped up in service to others. As well as service with others. You know? We're to serve one another. Cast off um, a spirit of selfishness and, 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 and love for self. Why? For the sake of others. Why? Because it displays the very glory and character and nature of Jesus Christ. But also, that our service is not alone, it's with others. Paul says, you know, um, that it's not in and of myself that I accomplish this. Right? I'm just, if I could just complete the act. If I could just be a part of it. If I could just be unified with the body. Sacrifice with them and their service. And amen. You know, there's... There's no captains of this ship. There's no men who go out necessarily and they're number one. And Jesus Christ is preeminent. And every man, even the Apostle Paul, is subservient to that. And he finds himself not, as a, not, not only as a leader in the church, but ultimately as a leader, as a servant. You know? Um, that, men feel, that, that men in high places, seemingly on this earth, should understand that they are to be the lowest of men. They are to be the humblest. That if you are a father this day, you're not, you're not a tyrant in the home. You're a servant of your wife and children. You're to die on the altar of self-sacrifice day in and day out as you seek their sanctification to present them as a holy people unto God. But this pulpit and this position as a pastor, as an elder, um, is not a position of authority to overbear on people, that to be in total submission to God that, 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 and service to Him that, that we might present to them a, it's not a glory to present to him a, a sacrifice acceptable unto him. You know, it's not a it's not a glorious position from a world's perspective. It may seem that way, but that's only because men have abused it. You know what it is? It's a it's an invitation. Men come and die. Die. You know, you'll have things that you wanted to do. You'll have a life that you wanted to leave. Um, you you'll have to die to that. You know, in pursuit of the people. There'll be things that you want to do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you won't be able to do that. Why? Because the people need you. When they don't think they need you, you need to go after them anyway. It's a, it's a life of death. 
That's the Christian life altogether. And the, and the quicker that you understand that, the more pleasure God will receive out of your life. Um, number four, this passage teaches the nature of the gospel and its practical outworking, and we've already alluded to that. And finally, this passage teaches us that even in the midst of that, that it will be the greatest joy of your life. There is no doubt in my mind about that. Acts 20, verse 24, the Apostle Paul alludes to the tribulations, the persecutions, the men that stand against him. And he says, I count that as practically nothing. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't move me. I count it my joy. I count it my joy to share in the sufferings with my Lord. And the priestly service is not glamorous. But it is service to God. And thus we rejoice in it. That we can give him and bring him anything that is acceptable and honoring to him. Um, One of the motivations that Paul says in service like this is, and he encourages them for the same reason, verse 18, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He says, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Don't count it as loss. If God gives me this opportunity, this was what I was called for. This is what I was built for. This is what I was equipped for. And if I can do it, it's the greatest joy of my life. And don't see it on that day when I'm poured out in Rome as a loss to the church. Um, see it and rejoice with me because I've completed my course. I've ran the race. I'm done. I've received the reward of my sufferings. Pray that I finish well. And when I do, if I do, rejoice with me. Be glad with me. May your heart abound in jubilation. Not just an external form of praise, but truly be glad, he says. Be glad that he's calling for this right understanding of Paul's ministry and theirs in light of that great day that if he perseveres to the end, that a right understanding would cause them to rejoice. Rejoice. Do you rejoice in life and in death? Even in the midst of all the pain, difficulty, sufferings, trials, tribulations. Paul's arguing for that. I'm not arguing up here for a sober, somber, teary-eyed, cry-as-you-go, complain about the pain, murmur what God's called us to do. Now, we are just servants by the grace of God. We are what we are, and if that's what we are and God's made us, then we should rejoice in it. And if at any moment my life can contribute to the pleasure of God and the holiness of His people, And that is sufficient grounds to rejoice. And that's actually the appropriate response. So let us rejoice when they come against the church, when they persecute us, when we die on their behalf, when blood is shed for Christ. Yes, we mourn. So we understand the nature of a man and what he's done against God. But too, we understand that this reigns throughout eternity. In this too, we learn that all things matter. All things matter. And all things will be judged. And that what we do here and now will reign throughout all eternity. So let our faithfulness reign, not, on our, not for our sakes, but for the sake of the church and for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you, thank you, and praise you for this passage. Father, I feel like I'm muddled around.
one said meandered. Maybe I did. Father, I may you turn my muddling and meandering, Father, into eternal things. Father, may you use it in all of its fallibleness and all of its seemingly grittiness and all of its incompleteness and all of its unpolishedness and all of its failures and all of its faults, Father. May you use it to your end and to your glory. Father, if it would push on, I pray that, this, I pray that you would help it, Father, not to run in vain. As Paul said, I don't want to get to that day, Father. Find out that it was all in vain. Not for my own sake, Father, but because you deserve a sacrifice that's acceptable. Father, on a lot of days, I don't know how to do that. I suppose that's the point. We would just wholly depend upon the work of Christ. And that in that work of Christ, he would make unholy things holy. He would make unclean things clean. And he would make temporal things eternal. So, Father, I pray that you would take the last hour and a half to two hours that we've worshipped together. And you would show forth the beauty of your bride to each person that's here, even the littlest of these. And you would use it, Father. Um, to make dead men live, to make young, precious girls alive in Christ, and to give us a heart and a desire, Father, to lose ourselves and to be to spend and to be spent in this life for God and for God alone. And may that manifest itself in our wholesale service to one another. Father, if we're forgotten, and most of us, all of us will be, if you tarry, if your son tarries long enough, May we rejoice in that, that Christ may be remembered. Father, we pray that you would produce in us not a great and glamorous people, but a faithful people who can stand in that great day and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, in the modesty of such a service, in the modesty of the service of God, Father, may we labor patiently, persevere diligently, Father, day in and day out with just a love for you and a love for others. And on occasion, if you deem it right, necessary, and good and gracious, Father, would you make yourself known to us that we might know that you go with us, not in an omniscient, omnipresent type of way and that all the world know that we know that you're everywhere at all times, but in a practical, experiential way, as two or three gather together, we know that you're in the midst. Father, as Revelation 1 through 3, that you're walking among your candlesticks at work. Father, we want to know that your son is at work. Father, and we know that when you make a holy people, so make us holy. And let all the world know in the face of that holiness, Father, that there is a God in heaven who deserves to be worshipped. May we be forgotten, Father, that he may be remembered and ultimately glorified. Use all these things, Father, to his end and to his end alone. And if our life or death contributes to that at all, then let us rejoice and be glad and rejoice with one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If we will stand and sing just a verse or two of number 393. Three ninety three. Take my life and let it be. I think is a fitting song given the sermon. That the Lord would take.
news.